from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Hey, welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's a conversation in which we explore all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our broken world, the larger society, and of course, your private self, who you are as an individual, your mind, body, and spirit. How do you bring harmony among all those different pieces? It is possible. You got to be smart about it and learn about it. And that's what we're here to do. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program. Now I spend most of my professional time running a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can visit totalleadership.org for information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. I've just released an audio course based on Total Leadership. It's called Four-Way Wins on Himalaya Learning, which is an audio learning platform that has an extensive library of great courses. You can listen to mine and others like it. Go to Himalaya.com slash wins and enter the promo code wins at checkout to get your first 14 days free. All right. Hope to see you there. New episodes of this show. They premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business as well as me. I'm at Stu Friedman. Uh, It's going to be a lot of very useful chunks of information and guidance on today's show. Well, you know, no one doubts the effectiveness of technology in keeping us connected, especially in the pandemic and hopefully emerging from pandemic new realities. But in many cases, we may be too connected, too much connection, too much collaboration. My guest today, based on his research, estimates that we spend 85% of our time each week with email, video meetings, projects, working well into the night and even on weekends, this always on work environment, which we've talked about a number of different times on this show over the years, Uh, but especially now, it's burning people out, hurting performance, um, really reducing their well-being, rather than delivering on the promises of productivity, innovation, engagement, and dare I say, freedom. Rob Cross is the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College, and he's the author, most recently, of what we're going to be focusing on in the conversation today. His book is called Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. Rob, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to have you here, Rob. I've, I've long been an admirer of your work. Let me just say a little bit about uh, you before we get into the conversation. Rob has studied the underlying network dynamics of effective organizations and the collaborative practices of high performance for more than 20 years. He's the co-founder and research director of the Connected Commons Business Consortium. He's authored numerous Harvard Business Review articles on practical approaches to enhancing collaboration, and he's the co-author of five other books, including The Hidden Power of Social Networks. All right, Rob, so um, what is dysfunctional collaboration uh, and how does it, how is it, how is it destroying us? Yeah, great question. So for me, what I'm not targeting, obviously, is the kind of collaboration that we all positively think about, right? The teams that are dynamically working together, generating the new innovation, you know, those sorts of integration of diversity perspectives. But rather that as you look over the past decade and a half, we've had all these organizational initiatives that have from matrix to spans and layers to agile. Uh, that have taken layers out of the hierarchy, but foisted increasing collaborative demands on people and simultaneously mm-hmm. had all these different technologies come through that seem cheap and inexpensive in isolation, but are kind of creating this context where the collaborative footprint of the work has really exploded, right? And so for my focus, it's really been around watching the amount of time people are spending in collaborative activities uh, really ratchet up. And what we can see is about a, you know, 50% or more over the past decade of time 
Um, 85% is what we were seeing pre-pandemic and time spent in collaborative work, email, you know, phone, IM, Slack, the various channels that people have. And that number for many has gone up five to eight hours through the pandemic and earlier into the morning, deeper into the night. So it's really that that I'm targeting is trying to understand um, in this book specifically that 90% of the population stressed and burned out today, but about 10% I could see in all my work were crushing it. They were performing better and they were also scoring higher on different measures around career satisfaction, things like that. And it was that group I was really interested in saying, what are you doing? Right? How, are you, how have you kind of sorted this out today? And that's what you've, you've brought to us in uh, Beyond Collaboration Overload and that we're going to spend a good chunk of our time talking today about what those um, the, you know, people who know how to, how to use collaboration intelligently um, how they do it and, and what our listeners can learn from that. Uh, so you're not saying uh, to trash all collaboration, quite the opposite. You're saying just be smarter about it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's a little bit of a, an unintended consequence of the title, right? Sometimes people look at that and they're saying, are you saying don't collaborate? And, and actually what we're finding is that the, the highest performers, they're distinguished not by the size of their network, but by the efficiency of it. And what they're doing with that reclaimed time compared to their peers is they're collaborating more and in different ways. And so that's really what I was trying to get to was what's unique about how these people are actually getting scale and, and driving innovation a little bit differently. Before we get into how to first break the cycle of um, inefficient uh, collaboration and how, how, to, how to actually make that happen, um, I wonder if you could say a bit about uh, a bit more about the impact of collaboration overload, as you call it, on our lives beyond work. That's huge. Yeah. And, you know, and it's hard to separate the two, as you know, at work or at home. But um, I think the reason that I got so passionate about this book, number one, I could see it in the analytics that we've applied across 300 organizations that people were drowning. Um, but I think the thing that really hooked me was I've done over 600 interviews with people um, as I've gone through this. And some of the stories that you hear are, you know, really just horrible <laughs> in terms of the way organizations have designed roles today because they don't understand the collaborative asks they're making of people. The, the role may be doable, but they've pushed so much collaborative work onto it that um, the impact is just tremendous uh, on, on individuals. And so I would say the last 200 interviews I did, um, I, 10% of them at one point had a, had a sob or a couple of people actually in tears over different things. The first 15 minutes were great, right? It's, oh, I'm doing well and everything else. But then it would evolve into ways people are living their lives that are just what totally are, What are people crying about? When they talk about the, the yeah, I mean, time, version uh, of of their of their lives at work on their lives beyond work, right? So what you hear a lot about, I mean, one of the most common patterns was these what I call the echo chamber uh, moments, where people kind of absorb in work, you know, three, five, eight years, then they suddenly have this moment where they pull into the driveway because they, you know, a trip was canceled, a meeting was canceled, or whatever, and they have this wake up moment and realize I had you know, no friends left, no hobbies and, and nothing else, right, to kind of lean into. And so, you know, it's that kind of idea. A woman in one of my interviewees gave eight years of her life to one of the well-known software firms and thought she had great friends. Her mother died. Uh, you know, nobody showed up at the funeral. <laughs> and it's just kind of stark moments of, of things like that or just separation for how they're having to show up as parents or um, uh, friends, right, in different ways that, you know, you hear really is stressful. And at the heart of it, what's happening that's different today is people are falling into defensive or reactive postures to all these things coming at us through uh, these instantaneous ways of connecting. And it's when they give up that control, they don't kind of keep it a little bit that, that I was hearing the worst stories. When you say giving up control, uh, what, let, let's just, get into that here a bit because i know that's going to be a major theme and it is one in your book what what is the essence of that problem giving up control yeah the the stories that i would hear that would end poorly is when people kept falling into reactive postures you know mm -hmm. saying i have to 
answer this email more rapidly or I have to deliver for this client account or I have to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of meet this expectation. And they didn't start questioning about how am I putting structure into the work um, and, and rather than letting it structure me. And, and so the, the magic I find a lot of times is, and what these people did particularly well, that were buying back about, you know, 18, 24% of their time statistically compared to the average is they fought for it on the margin of the small things, right? So they would block reflective time. They would kind of pattern work in a rhythm that worked for them. Mm-hmm. They would strategically calendar. They would manage role interdependencies ahead of things coming at them, right? All these smaller things that kind of put structure in that enabled them to kind of work in a way that they wanted a little bit. Now, it never works, right? <laughs> People would say, this is what I do every week and I try to make it happen and maybe only 40% of it works and in response to all the dynamics, but that's 40% more than the people who have given up, mm-hmm. you know, time. That, I mean, all of this is, is really motivated by a more intentional and clear-headed view of what is essential and what is not. So what, it, what is it that you have found about um, what essential collaboration really is all about and how one discovers what that is in one's life and work, especially? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, a lot of this would tie back to things that you've done, right. And, and focused on as well. But for me, what I would see in terms of really being anchored on what's important, the people that did that well, it wasn't that they had these kind of lofty, lofty aspirations of like, um, you know, I'm going to hit this role in this time period or just vague things. Like I have a North Star aspiration to be giving back to the community. They were in, in every interview, incredibly precise on what are the capabilities I want to be deploying in my work in the coming three to five years and down to the level of is it analytics, is it market knowledge, is it, you know, leadership capabilities, whatever it is. And then what are the values I want to be experiencing, right? Is it mentoring, is it creativity? Um, and then they would, they would combine that with a clear understanding of who they wanted to be outside of work. And the greater that clarity I found, um, the, the better they tended to be at strategically calendaring Friday night or Sunday night with a one week and up to three month interval where they started working themselves into interactions that would pull them into work they wanted to be doing, or they were more willing to preserve time for things um, that are non-work related that kind of kept them whole. Um, So that was one of the most important elements I can see of the people that are doing as well. And that is rooted as just about everything seems to be in a clarity of what matters most to you, your values uh, and how you want to live and what you want your legacy to be. Um, Let's, Let's uh, let's look at how you found through your research um, people can break free from the overload. You, you mentioned and described in separate chapters, challenging beliefs, imposing new structure, which you started to talk about, and altering behaviors to streamline collaboration practices. I want to get into those, but first let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life. On Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, I'm your host, Stu Friedman. My guest today is Rob Cross, who's professor of global leadership at Babson College and the author of Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. So where does one begin? Uh, is it with challenging beliefs, or is there something else that one should start? If people are listening and thinking, yeah, that sounds good. Uh, this is definitely a description of my life. Where do I start, Professor? <laughs> so the easy thing and the thing that people grab onto super quickly is on the practices, right? And so, you know, you find that the people um, that they manage email differently, right? As one example, they're not the, the more efficient people are not looking at email and saying, I can't control it all. I can't control and get one easy, elegant solution. Um, the efficient collaborators would be more likely to sit down and say, my team is generating 40% of what I'm dealing with. And I can sit down and do a simple exercise of, blank sheet of paper, let's list the modalities of how we're collaborating down one column and let's get an agreement in a one-hour meeting on how are we going to use these things, right? Three ideas on each of these ways we're collaborating that are positive. So maybe it's, you know, we're, not, we're going to write emails and bullets, right? We're not going to write nine paragraph emails and hide what we want in the eighth. Um, and then the last column is just three things we're going to stop doing, right? Maybe if we have to write emails at 10 o'clock at night, um, we're not going to send them We'll send them on a delay so we don't start the 10.01, 10.03, 10.05, kind of always on context. So there's all sorts of really simple things 
that these more efficient collaborators are doing from a tactical standpoint that are real quick wins, right? Just getting agreement with the sphere you control on how we're going to collaborate, not the, the tools mm-hmm. themselves, norms around them. Um, well, let me just jump in here and, and ask you about uh, the spheres of control that you just mentioned, because that's, I think, often the rub, right? Well, I don't control anything. My boss, my client, my my spouse, my kids, my mother, uh, you know, they're all making demands and I can't say no. Right. Well, what I find is that the people that do better, they're they're. I mean, that's an easy out. Right. I mean, the easy out of this game is to say I can't control email either. Right. Because it's coming at me from everywhere. Mm-hmm. What I find they're doing is to say, what can I control it in? Right. And to get better at that, I, I equate this to a game, if not a ballet, but a brawl. <laughs> and everybody wants that one seductive principle, the easy solution that's going to solve the bigger thing. And that's not what these people are doing. They're fighting for it, you know, on the margin. And they're certainly not falling into that mindset of I can't control this. Right. They don't look at their boss and say, I can't control all the demands. They'll set up an interface uh, one woman was fantastic, and she said, you know, she had this boss that would come at her with crazy requests who had no idea of the collaborative footprint of the work he was asking for was overwhelming her, her team, everybody else. So she mm-hmm. started pulling out this impact to effort grid, just a simple, you know, one axis was the amount of impact this thing was going to have. The other axis was the amount of effort. And every time this crazy person came up, they had to say, OK, where does this thing sit? And she said the first time he did it, he freaked out. He's like, I don't like this. But then, uh, you know. What, what didn't he like about it? Well, he was, you know, it was a pushback, right? In a positive way. But it was mm-hmm. like, okay, here's all the things I have going. Let's figure out, is this real or not? And, but, but with a courageous move and the right way of doing it, it changed that whole interaction, right, over time. Because he had to admit it was a good idea. Like, he couldn't just keep dumping stuff. Um, and then, you know, she said to me, the, the most valuable thing was, after a couple of instances of that, the request didn't even keep coming, right? Because the person knew he was going to have to justify it on the impact effort grid. So that's a person that could have given up, right? And so I can't control my crazy boss. Where did she uh, find the courage to, to present to her boss this impact effort trade-off analysis that, you know, that compelled her boss to then think twice before uh, making yet another demand? Where, where did, what, what gave her the impetus you know, to muster the, the, the courage to come forward with something. Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a, uh, I can't speak to her. So I'm thinking of a very fiery person in this. So it could have been okay. something that came from her. All right. Uh, but what I do see in this, and it actually speaks to things that you care about too, is the people that have greater courage to um, stay, say things like that, to kind of draw the lines mm-hmm. of work. In my view of the world, they always had two or three groups they were a part of outside of work. Hmm. Right. And that they that that dimensionality in their networks, and we've seen this quantitatively too, um, lended greater perceptions of courage and to kind of be willing to to do certain things in the moment. We've seen that play out over and over again. Like the group, people that lose like that, religious groups, political groups, yeah, uh, community groups. Walks, right, all walks of life. I could hear them, people could talk about his athletic pursuits, they could talk to me about religion for sure so wait so if if i if i'm in a bowling league or something like that that's going to make it easier for me to talk back to my boss and tell him that hey you can't be sending me all these emails because they're wasting my time about bowling but (laughs) 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 maybe if that's it for you but um what i would see is more is situating an activity like something you care about and want to be good at so it could be bowling right Mm -hmm. um but it could be biking it could be swimming it could be you know civic duties right and that thing creates a dimensionality in your life but the key thing that i was discovering in all these interviews mm-hmm. was it was also putting these people in groups that came at life differently right so all of a sudden you're not hanging out with university of pennsylvania faculty member you're hanging out with a software developer a you know mailman whatever it may be and mm-hmm. they see life differently and it starts to create a dimensionality in these people's worlds mm-hmm. that um, puts work in perspective right it's not creating courage to go fight, you know, a, a mean fight, but it's to say this is not not worth it. And I, I can see this over and over again. The 10 percenters, I call them in my work, you know, the, the one in 10 interviews I'd have where people were coming and living on their terms. Yeah. That was an incredibly consistent thing. It's um, in so life. interesting that there's real value for being uh, a more effective, higher impact player in your work life. Uh, to the extent that you have a more diverse, not necessarily large, 
but a diverse set of connections in meaningful groups or networks beyond work because they give you a different perspective. Uh, they they challenge your help you to challenge beliefs and uh, and 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 sort of encourage you to think creatively about uh, the possibilities for a better way uh, than what you're doing at work. Am I capturing it correctly or not? Completely. It creates a different way of, you know, being you. And what I could sense in these interviews, I mean, everybody's had the experience of just grumbling, complaining about life, whatever it is, right? Things aren't going well. And then something traumatic happens, right? And you look back at these things that were really critical two minutes ago, and you're like, why did I care? Right. And I'm really convinced that my 10 percenters and the way they keep dimensionality in their life that way, they live a little bit more like that without the trauma. You know what I mean? They look at kind of the minutiae and they just rise above it, you know, a little bit differently. Now, the hard hmm. part for a lot of people right now is, you know, when you hear as we've gone through COVID, people are stressed out, they're burned out. We know the volume of demands has risen and it's a part of that stress. But what a lot of people are missing is it's also the social distancing has pulled us out of this, these groups that mm. kept us sane to begin with, right? Yeah. And so experiencing it, you know, differently. So, well, let's, let's stay on this for a moment. What, what, what advice do you have for people uh, to continue to cultivate their non-work relationships, not just because they are inherently gratifying to them, but but also because they they provide them with the um, a broader perspective that enables them to, to be more creative in uh, in their work and especially in challenging the way things are at work. Um, what's, what's the best way to keep doing that? Yeah, great. Uh, and, and, you know, I'll answer it in a certain way about how do you get back in it if you've fallen out, you know, and okay. that's, that's kind of, to me, was one of the questions I really pushed on mm-hmm. as we went because, what I can see in the analytics we have is people kind of hit their mid thirties and kind of work has taken off. Life has taken off. And that tends to be the points we can see them falling out of these groups, you know, slowly the commute's gotten too long or the, you know, the responsibilities as a parent or other things have kicked in their job responsibilities have taken off. And simultaneously, you know, that would tend to also equate to when we're measuring things like health around BMI or other things like that, that would equate to points where health started to fall too. And so BMI body mass index, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. When we can get evidence of that from, from Mm -hmm. different places to tie that to the networks. And, um, and so, you know, one of the big interests I had, and we know authentic relationships, right? They predict everything, like every model of what creates a happy person or the Harvard longevity studies or whatever, but there's not a lot of discussion of, okay, what happens if you get busy in life and you've fallen out? Like, how do you kind of, you know, reclaim that? Mm-hmm. And what I would see is really two strategies to that. One is mm-hmm. people would reach back to a passion from the past and use that to slingshot them into a new group, right? And so this mm-hmm. could be an athletic pursuit. Uh, one of my favorite interviews was a neurosurgeon, head of neurosurgery for one of the most well-known hospitals out there. And he was talking to me and just giddy because he was playing guitar again, which he did in high school with 20 year olds. (laughs) And it just brought him into a totally different sphere and way of kind of, you know, living his life. And so a tremendous Mm -hmm. amount of that, right. Reach back to a passion, pull it forward into a new group or uh, reach back to relationships that had gone dormant and reignite them with a different activity. Right. So that could be walks or it could be dinners or, uh, could be virtual things, right? If you're just trying to pull people back together. And again, people would say the same thing. It's amazing how those ties started right back up as if 20 years hadn't elapsed, right? Mm-hmm. But it started to kind of create a different different sphere for them. Well, and how do you help that mid-30s person who's got a couple kids and a demanding job? And, uh, you know, that's that's all I can do is think about my my kids and my work. There's nothing else. Please, Dad. I mean, please, uh, Professor, uh, don't don't push me too far on this. Uh, wh- what do you tell them? I mean, what I see in this is that the people that are my 10 percenters, they're not defined by doing the big thing. Like I was looking for that in the interviews, like people would want to live their purpose by starting a, you know, a food bank or hiking mm-hmm. the Himalayas or something big. The they silver bullet. Of, yeah. Right. And, and, and what society kind of feeds us, right. This is where we want to go. And it's just over the horizon. It's six months, nine months, 12 months away, whatever. I found that the people that were better, they lived the smaller moments better. Right. So as a 
posed to a woman I interviewed recently. Um, she'd been a, a marathon and 10K runner all her life, constantly pursuing personal best times. And, and she woke up one day and said, why do I care right, about these times? Right? It's not changing who I am as a person. And she really sat back and said, what I really want to be doing is running with my child. And that turned into their child's best friend, a parent, and that evolved into a set of uh, neighbors, right, running together in the morning. Same idea, still getting exercise, but mm -hmm. with that same amount of time, and this is the real key to me, is she pulled herself into other groups that were meaningful to her, her child, yeah. you know, her, her child's friend, the parents. And that's what I see when I'm really kind of focused on this with people. We have this graph and way of looking at it. It's in the book um, that says, not how do you go do something big? But how do you take the things that you're already doing and shift them in a way that's going to pull you into more of these relationships, right? It's like yeah. weeks. And mm -hmm. that's what it say to the busy dad. <laughs> with it, with that's, the, what with say, that's what I say dad. to the busy parent. Because <laughs> yeah. yes. I totally get that, right. right? I mean, the last thing I can do is come in and say, you got to go hike the Himalayas. <laughs> um, but, but this is a, a more actionable approach. We have to take a short break, uh, but don't go away. When we come back, I'll be continuing my conversation with Rob Cross about his really important and practical new book. It's called Beyond Collaboration Overload. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I'm Stu Friedman, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program and founder of Total Leadership, a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping individuals and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what we do. Our research shows that it is not only possible, it's fun. My guest today is Rob Cross, who's the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College and the co-founder and research director of the Connected Commons Business Consortium. We may get to talking more about that. If not, we'll send you links to where you can find out more about it. We're, today, we're focusing on his book, Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. Well, um, so challenging beliefs, what have you found is the most difficult part of that process to change the way you think, um, about collaboration? Yeah, it's, that is the single biggest surprise I had in this work. You know, as I got into it, I was completely convinced that the enemy was out there. It was time zones, emails, nasty bosses, demanding clients, and that that was the problem, right? And, and exclusively, if we could solve that, we'd be good. And as I went through the interviews, um, you know, it became super, super clear to me that 50% or more of the problem are these really deep beliefs or triggers that kind of lead us to jump into situations in, in ways that are, uh, are not that helpful. And I kind of stumbled on it, to be honest with you. I was going through all these interviews. And you can imagine if I called you up, like you get identified as the efficient collaborator. And the first thing you get is a 90 minute interview with me as your reward. Um, and what I would focus on is, um, you know, tactical stuff at first, right? And then about minute 45, over and over again, it would happen that people would say, as they got used to what I was looking for, they'd say, Rob, I hit a time in my life where I was fed up with it, right? And I would always expect for about 100 interviews for that next statement to be, magnificent, right? It was, I wrote a concerto or I did something really big. And every single time it would be something really, really small. Like I decided I was going to go home one day a week on time and see a trainer, right? I was not going to do email from six to nine. But what was amazing is these people would worry about it. They would describe situations that I talked to my friends, should I go do this big egregious thing and on and on. And then they would do it. And because this was all retrospective, they would kind of laugh and say, you know, nobody even noticed, right? So you said agree, this big egregious thing, egregious in the sense that it might harm other people or that they might feel somehow ashamed or guilty about doing it or what? Yeah, a little bit of that, not harm, but a little bit of, I think the, you know, am I being a good colleague? Am I showing up well? And by egregious, I obviously mean that tongue in cheek. It was ridiculous things. It was going home one day a week on time. It was not doing email in a certain interval, um, but they built it up in their head. You know what I mean? Like this was going to be a big deal. And well, then, you know, in certain cultures, though, getting home on time might be seen as abnormal or egregious. Uh, allow me just a brief anecdote about this. When I was uh, the head of leadership development at Ford Motor Company, this was 20 years ago. 
we were um and and i i had come to the company uh on a like a short-term few-year assignment and was committed to getting home for dinner most nights and that and you know among the top 300 at ford that was that was kind of unusual so one time i was in uh cologne germany where our european headquarters were and i'm you know kicking off one of our big programs in europe and uh this guy comes over to me at the coffee break and says, are you the one who gets home for dinner every night? I said, well, what? How do you know that? I'm 6,000 miles from home. And he's telling me he heard about that. And that's because it was extremely unusual in that culture at that time for you know a top 300 executive to be home for dinner. So it, it kind of was egregious in that sense. But um I, I kind of digress, although it really is on the point of how. No, it's yeah. Well, go ahead, please. Well, it's totally on point, but you didn't get fired either, right? <laughs> or maybe no, you did. I don't know. No, no, no. I I ended up I ended up quitting because it was too much for my family. But but uh, right. that's a another longer story. Story, yeah. Not not today. <laughs> but the um yeah. How does it I help mean, us understand? It. It, it feels like a lot, and I would hear this over and over again that people would right. say, you know, I I put a little structure right into what I'm doing. I was leaving at a certain point. I was part of volunteer groups or other places. And the the company you're characterizing and others were are part of this group, part of the consortium, part of the people I interviewed. So I get the pressure, but it's amazing how often there weren't negative repercussions when people actually took that step and they actually became models in the way that you're talking about, right? Other people would say, how are you doing this? And and how are you pulling it off? Um, but in terms I think of that's the really the key, isn't it? That that you that you make these kinds of you know changes with the intention to not only improve your own life beyond work, but actually to show up better as uh, as a contributor to your work. That's that's a kind of paradox that most people don't get until they try it. I think there's a huge interplay, right? I mean, who you are outside, it it starts to, dic- I mean, people want to follow people that are bigger than just work, right? They're interested. They're, how are you pulling this off? I mean, there's a lot of overlap that comes um, back with that as well. Um, so, you know, huge deal. But to the point you were asking, I mean, those triggers in people's mind, they were, they were internally driven, right? It's mm-hmm. this belief that here's how I have to show up for my colleagues. Here's how I have to here's what a good leader shows up like, right? And, and I could see that over and over again when we would use the analytics to see who were the overloaded leaders and the negative impact that would have on them and the organization. The knee-jerk reaction everybody would have in looking at that is they'd say, oh, they're controlling too much, right? They're micromanaging, they need to delegate. And I would say only in maybe 10% of the time is that the case. You know, you'd find people get in trouble because they have a really heavy servant-based mindset. And they see being a good colleague is helping and, you know, being a leader is helping directly. And that's a great thing, right? But in today's interconnected world, if you do it in a way that allows you to become the path of least resistance, now more than ever, you know, you can get into these situations that you can't live through, right? You just too many demands kind of coming at you. And so that was one of a series of these, you know, triggers that we would find really caught people in small moments when when they jumped in in a way that sometimes they couldn't even see the impact of it for four, eight or 12 weeks, but it would mm-hmm. come back to them in the form of, of overload that was uh, sometimes, you know, debilitating. So so reflecting back on the the aha moments and the small changes that had big impact, what's what's the in- implication of of that insight, Rob, which you write about in, in Beyond Collaboration Overload for you know, what do you want to tell our listeners about what that means for them? I think the first thing is to be mindful of that trigger. So, I'll, and now the stories in the book, like crazy, I'll tell you, for me, the trigger is accomplishment, right? If I look at, if I, if I see a five minute window of time, I'm going to try to jam 60 minutes of stuff in it. And I'll completely ignore the three hours of email and calls I got to do to align the people on my team that we're going to go do this thing. And then I'll be complaining about it six weeks later going, why is this taking so much? completely missing the fact that I started it all, right? With this thing I jumped into that we didn't need to do to begin with um, because there was space, right? And so for me, that's that's kind of the trigger. And people have it in other ways, right? I, I have to learn to guard against that. And I do it in two ways. I say, am I the only one qualified to do this in the team that I manage? And and I've admitted deep agreement with my wife, 
<laughs> that wasn't going to take on anything else until we talked about it. Um, and those two things are, are kind of working for me to not cause my own problems. If it's a, a servant-based mindset, you know, person, uh, Silicon Valley executive I spoke with, she had this great heuristic of saying yes means saying no, right? Just kind of being really clear in those quick moments that um, I could definitely jump in and help solve this and do it more quickly, but what's it going to take me away from, right? And, and that became her guardrail. But it's those sorts of things that I see um, the, the people doing well uh, in terms of identifying and then keeping that from getting them in trouble. Uh, there's so much more to uncover uh, and and to learn about in in your book. I want to focus on uh, what you call micro stressors and how connecting with others in meaningful ways can help you to enhance your your well-being. Uh, tell us a, a bit more about what those micro stressors are about and how to how yeah. to minimize their impact on your life. Awesome. Yeah, this was, you know, the uh, probably to me, one of the most important things through all the interviews that we came to. And where I, I, I hit this was we, we focused very much on um, in the latter part of this work, looking at relational drivers of well-being. Right. And so every you know model out there of what creates a happy person, they have authentic relationships as a piece of it. But there's less evidence of what are you getting from these people? How do you build these connections? Those sorts of things. And so we focused on a framework to understand ways that connections affect people's physical health, right? When they've made decisions to get healthier and persist, ways they create um, growth in their lives, kind of inside and outside of work, how they create a sense of purpose and meaning, and then how they create resilience, right? And so resilience is an example um, a lot of times people think of it as internal fortitude or grit, but if you talk to people about how they got through difficult times um, and, and really, you know, focus on the relationships, not what they did, you, you see, we fall back on people in, in eight pretty predictable ways. Mm-hmm. So very first interview I was doing was lovely uh, life science executive in London, British accent. And I asked her, I said, tell me about a time in your life when you were becoming more healthy and not what you were doing, but what was the relationships uh, around you? And she kind of chuckled and she said, well, Rob, I was the person in gym in high school that dodged gym. I did everything possible <laughs> to get out of, you know, PE and other things like that. And she said she had her thirties and, and, and her doctor gave her a pretty stern warning, said, you need to go do something about this. And so she started walking around a park in London and she bumped into a couple of people doing that at the same time. They started walking together and then that expanded into, you know, a longer walk and a charity run. And then you flash forward to 10 years when I was interviewing her and she was planning vacations with her husband where they would do a marathon first. Right. And this was the person that dodged gym in, in high school. And so it's a fantastic interview. Right. First of 200 I'm doing in this sphere. High energy. We're laughing. I'm thinking, you know, if I get another 199 of these, this is awesome. And on a whim, I just said, well, what what got you in trouble? And there was this pause, like a dramatic drop, you know, in terms of um, I didn't even know if she's still on the line for a second. And she said, just life, I guess. And, and I kind of really dug into that. And I started thinking about this idea I'm calling micro stresses, that stress comes at us in a different form today. Right. It comes at us in a lot of these small moments. And that's not just the volume of information. It's the way they're coming at us through relationships that make it even uh, more impactful right? The things that are hitting us. So as an example, it's seeing something misalignment with a colleague, right? At work, or it's um, seeing a team member that needs to be coached for the third time and thinking about how am I going to do that? It's getting a text from a child where you can't tell if, you know, they're just venting on something they're over in a minute and you worry about it for three hours or something serious. But the, the issue today is we're getting hit with 20, 25, 30 of these through the day. And we go home exhausted and we can't put our finger on what just happened. Right. Our mind is good at the big things, but not at this accumulation of the small. And it's choking us off. Right. In, in pretty significant ways. So Hang on to that, Rob. I want to I want to continue with this, but I, I need to remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Rob Cross, who is professor of global leadership at Babson College and author of Beyond Collaboration Overload. All right. So there's this accumulation that is ever more rapid and in higher volume of uh, what you refer to as micro stressors. What do you do about that? Yeah, it's the way we're looking at it now. Let me say it that way, because, you know, this is kind of an evolving piece of work for me, too. 
um, is first, you know, we, we work with people in a way that say, where are two or three of these things coming at you that, that are systemic enough that you need to do something about, right? We're just all used to fighting through the day, right? And getting through it, but kind of stepping back and saying, is it, um, where's this coming from, right? And how do you isolate out a couple that you're going to address directly, shifting from the interaction, um, shifting the nature of the interaction, whatever it may be. So you can imagine this grid that I'm describing where people are isolating out where this is coming from, not the stressor, but also where it's hitting from. And then I'm asking them a second question. I do this all the time in, in big sessions. I'll say, okay, now that you've done that, I want you to tell me two or three that you're causing others, right? And, and kind of take that step back and say, how am I in a, in a system that, that I'm propagating? Could you and give an example of that? Um, well, it, it, say more about that. You mean in terms a, a, of... An example of how I or you, uh, anyone is creating those kinds of stressors for other people. Like, right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, you hear people, for example, I, I did a couple of things today where we're polling on this and people would say, well, misalignment is the microstressor that's killing me, right? You know, we don't have alignment. And then you ask them, you know, what are you causing? And they'll say misalignment. <laughs> and it, it's really funny because it was not funny, but it's, it's the way it shows out. Oftentimes the profile on these polls of what people are experiencing tends to be very, very similar to what they're causing. Right. And what I'm trying to do is get them to kind of pause for a moment and just reflect a little bit on how do you stop this, right, from kind of creeping forward in different ways. So misalignment um, would be like uh, what? Where well, I'm, I'm disagreeing with you and, and, and not listening to your your perspective on a common problem that we have? Or is it something could different? Be. I mean, it could be that. But I think a lot of what people are referring to is just as you, we are increasing in these agile ways of working, people are coming together and they're coming sometimes with different incentives, right, that, that kind of drive their behavior. They come with different values to what they care about in the work. And they're all moving so fast that, that they don't align, right? We don't have time anymore to do the vision, mission, purpose stuff because people are moving fast, not just in one, but six or seven of these efforts half the time. Mm. And, and so it just creates misalignment that suddenly you pick up. And you go, I've got to solve this at some point, right? And maybe pick it up in a big Zoom call and it may take a week or two to get, you know, with that person and, and solve it. Um, so, the, and that's kind of the nature of this. I'll tell you another one of the micro stresses that's a big deal is um, uh, kind of erratic or shifting behavior from a person in authority, right? And so the way that tends to show up is people that don't know what needs to happen. So they're changing the what a lot. Um, people that don't know what good looks like. So they're changing the, performance piece of it, or they're just showing up emotionally different, right? From point A to point B. Everybody's had that. Like you describe that and their heads are nodding right away. And it's like, yeah, I had a couple of bad situations, leaders, clients, stakeholders, whatever it is. What we miss with these micro stressors a lot of times is it's not just the direct effect, but there's a secondary effect with these things. So for example, you may take that home to your spouse and grumble about it. And they of course don't have the other side of the story. So they were reinforce your story, right? And, and it creates it again. Or maybe if that person's shifted things you have to go do, if you have already gone out into your network and, and aligned people to help you do the first trajectory, then you may be stuck helping them and having to go get new new friends to do this thing. So mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of the interesting thing in these is that they each have this direct effect, but then a secondary effect too, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. makes them a little bit bigger than we realize a lot of times. So, so what's the, what's the big insight so far? I know you're, you're devoting uh, attention to this in a, in a bigger way now and, and are uh, going to bring that to the world before too long. What's, what's the most important outcome of your looking at so far uh, at, at micro stressors and, and how to connect with others in, in different ways that allow you to, well, to thrive? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it, it boils to me down to a couple things, right? You know, isolating two or three that you're going to address, right? And removing those, um, isolating two or three that you may be causing, and then isolating two or three that you're magnifying, right? Situations where you've just gotten down into the minutiae and, and you're just making more of it than, than it, it's really worth at the end of the day. And again, to me, that is, is you know, the, the constant thing I'm preaching is that idea we've already talked about of have at least two and usually three groups outside of work because it's mm -hmm. things that keep that perspective, right? It keeps you from kind of tunneling down into the, uh, into the minutiae. So that's the, the way I'm looking at it right now, whereas a lot of people are coming at the well-being idea in companies 
and it's doing super important things, right? It's, it's mindfulness, it's, it's gratitude, it's um, other things like that, that are super effective, but the one limitation they have is that they're only designed to help people persist in the system they let accrue around them, right? They're not actually helping them shift the sets of these interactions, mm-hmm. either to shield from the negatives or to lean into the positives a little bit differently. Um, so that's, broadly speaking, kind of the trajectory we're taking on the work. Yeah, it's more of a social analysis, uh, right? Or looking at the the social system in which you operate and to see it as one that you can indeed influence um, to to make things better for you and for the people that you really care about, not the ones who are in your life and maybe don't need to be there. Uh, is Is any of Beyond Collaboration Overload addressing that question? how you get rid of people who cause you pain. Yeah. I mean, it was a learning that I would hear in the interviews, you know, over and over again. And it tended to be, you know, the, the connections that were embedded, right. You know, it was like a, a, a distant family member or, you know, somebody that was part of a friend group where you love their other friends, but one person's killing you um, in terms of the way they show up or what they're doing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, mainly what people would say is they would have strategies of, okay, can I, alter the, the nature of the interaction, right? And find ways to do that. If that doesn't work, can I distance a little bit, right? And so increase the intervals that I'm exposed to them. And then people would often talk about, and this happened so many times, they would say, it took me into my 40s to realize that some people just aren't worth it. <laughs> and, yeah. and the drama, right? And to just kind of, to your point, you know, say at some point, um, maybe it's better to move on. And so those were, you know, the continuum of things that I would, I would hear about around that. We only have a couple of minutes left, Rob. Uh, there's there's lots packed into Beyond Collaboration Overload. I wonder if you could uh, help us bring it home here by uh, sharing your your um, biggest insight from doing this research in terms of how you uh, have uh, reclaimed time, you know, as a result of what you have learned uh, from how you know, the 10 percenters, as you call them, the ones who have figured this out by whatever means they've done that. Um, what does it mean to reclaim time and, and how have you brought that idea into your own life? Oh, yeah, great question. So um, for me, and the, the structure of the book is to kind of talk about the beliefs, the triggers, and then how are you putting structure in um, at first before we go to the tactics and the tactics are really quick wins, right? It's, it's very quick things that people can almost always get 10, 15% of their time back. But if you're not doing it in the context of the, the, you know, the beliefs and the structure piece, what I see over and over again is people just spin themselves up into faster cycles. You know, so they move from eight one-hour meetings pre-pandemic to 16, 30-minute meetings post-pandemic, just taking this tactic and getting faster. So I was super cognizant. And the first thing I urge people is to be really mindful of um, what's that trigger, right? The tendency where you're kind of giving up control to the system and how do you make sure you uh, guard against that uh, to be incredibly clear on who you want to be outside of work, right? Have, you know, dimensionality, some kinds of identity you want to create and some connections that you're going to put yourself in mm-hmm. uh, as a way to, to buffer against that. So for me, what do I do? I, I cycle, I bicycle, like cycle 150 miles a week with a bunch of crazy old guys. Right. And that was pulling an, an idea I did in my past forward, situating it. I hang out with people that have nothing to do with academia <laughs> and, and they see me at my worst. I see them at their worst. And it's, it's just a dimension of who I am that keeps the minutiae right in perspective. And I've mm-hmm. done that two or three ways. Right? So you're in a biker I, gang. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I did have one of those too in my interviews. <laughs> well, but you were going to say about this this dimensionality and and what it's meant for you. Please uh, complete that thought, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's the things we've talked about, right? It, it just puts things in a very different perspective. It helps situate on what's important. Um, and there's a couple of different you know aspects of that. And I saw a ton of people doing it, right? Not just me, but kind of using this idea in particular of grabbing a passion from the past and, and, and pulling it, uh, pulling it forward. But if I had one thought on this, it's um, not to so quickly give up control in the situation, right? I don't think we've ever had more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with Hmm. than today, but we give it up. Like even the discussion we're having earlier about the boss coming at you, right? Mm -hmm. And people will say, well, I don't have control of that. Well, maybe you do, you know, a little bit on the margin. Mm -hmm. And um, that's, you know, the, the biggest 
piece of advice I have when I'm always talking about this stuff is play offense, not defense in this game. Take the initiative uh, to have an impact that you want to have and, and really be thoughtful uh, about, uh, about those connections. It doesn't take a lot, does it? Once you start to re- reflect and think about it, the, the, the problem that I often encounter in asking people to be more reflective and mindful as leaders in their lives is I don't have time for that. I got to get back to work <laughs> or my kids are screaming. Um, so you have to, you have to make that case as you do, I think very effectively in beyond collaboration overload, Rob, um, I really appreciate your being my guest today. Thank you very much for sharing your insights here and for putting this wonderful book together. How can listeners find out more about the book and the work that you're into these days? Uh, and thank you, obviously, for being here and for, for showing interest and, and bringing it out. But uh, best way uh, for me is uh, my website is robcross.org. Um, and we've put a lot of uh, resources out there that, that supplement the book in different ways, too. Thanks again. And thank you for joining us. Don't forget to tune in next week, 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have questions about something you heard on the show, just email me, friedman.wharton.upenn.edu. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. I'm also on Twitter at Stu Friedman. Visit TotalLeadership.org for more info about what we do. Thanks, Patty Hall, as ever, for producing the show and sound engineer Chris Tooks. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132. It's line on a good line, and down it goes. The best golf coverage is on Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. The world's greatest golfers. Tiger Woods. Phil Nicholson. Fred Couples. The best analysis. Tiger's going to have to get a little chip back on his shoulder. Unforgettable moments. Towards the left end, and it goes in. It's the most listened to golf in the world. Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. Sirius 208 XM 93. Sirius XM's POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. I'm Julie Mason. Hi, I'm Michael Smirconish. I'm Tim Farm. And every day we track all the news and events from Washington, D.C. and around the world. I love politics. We have discussions. And the best analysts in Washington. Just talking about politics, the serious and the absurd. And on POTUS, we'll give you news and analysis from inside Washington, D.C. With people who cover this story every day. That's the politics of the United States. Sirius XM's POTUS 124. Or listen on the Sirius XM app. Andy Cohen Live is fun. Are you ready? Are you ready for this? Do you like it? Do you like it like this? A party. I'm really excited. I'm so happy you are. Revelatory. What? I've never heard of that. Uncensored. I'm not being a downer. I'm being funny. Insane. Wow, man. What a trip it was. Jaw dropping. What's going on? <laughs> Join me on Andy Cohen Live. You never know what you're going to hear. Radio Andy. Sirius XM 102. Or listen anytime on the Sirius XM app.